Our uh, story in Acts this morning alerts us to something I think Luke wants us to see, that where Paul went, uh, he was always trying to move people towards the gospel and towards what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus. When he was dealing with the Jews, he dealt with them in a certain way and they had a certain reaction. And now when we get to Athens, we see that Paul is now dealing with secular people or Greek people, these Athenian people, who are more used to dealing with like a pantheon of gods. But in either place, God is, Paul is trying to move them towards God. And so when he gets to Athens, he says, I see how religious you are. And that gives us a hint that what Paul's trying to do is meet the Greeks on their terms. Because one thing every fisherman knows is that you catch fish on their terms, not yours. Right? If the fish are very deep in the water and you throw bait that's meant to float on the top, are you going to catch anything? No. And, and if the fish are eating very early in the morning and you roll out of the sack at 11 a.m. and get out there, you're not catching anything. You catch fish on their terms, not yours. But this is not compromise. As I said, Paul's always trying to move people. So when he was dealing with the Jews, he rooted his talks or his ideas or his arguments in Hebrew Scripture. Here Paul starts on their terms and then draws them into the world of Scripture. So in Athens, there were these sort of two big prevailing cultural notions. I mean, they're sort of philosophical, but they're not the kinds of things that one would have gotten into by reading you know, books on philosophy or something. They were just in the air, so to speak. And one was the Epicureans, and the other ones were the Stoics. Well, the Epicureans thought that God was a long way off, that he really didn't communicate with humans, and that one should just do life the best they could, enjoying as much pleasure as possible, and just kind of a simple, happy, pain-free life. I mean, that's just a good little sketch of Epicurean thought. The Stoics, on the other hand, are nearly pantheistic. I mean, they're not exactly pantheistic, but very close. Thinking that there's a divine force within each person and that the good life was to get in harmony with this nature in order to avoid any kind of destructive or unpleasant emotions. That's kind of where the Stoics were. And Paul answers to both of them, not really starting with sort of the daily kind of thinking, but gets them right to the big picture by saying to them, you're both wrong. Now, this is tough today to say you're wrong. And last week I said something, I can't remember exactly what, but, oh, it was about that one of the difficulties in doing good Bible study is to make accurate one-to-one correspondence to applications, and we just live in a different day-to-day. We live in a day in which most people who are not actively Christians have seen Christianity and decided against it. So it's very hard to make one-to-one real application here with what Paul's doing, with what we're trying to do today, except for to do what I've already said. We cannot give up on helping move people closer and closer to God and what God's up to. So the way I do this for myself so that I don't feel like I'm powering up on people or that I'm not you know, um, accepting people where they are and that sort of thing, what I've done to hopefully make myself a man of peace is that I'm trying to evangelize myself. I'm trying to move myself ever closer and closer and closer to God and what he's up to, ever more becoming the kind of person who would be happy when God finally has his way, and what our text called today the day of judgment or justice in which God makes everything as it's supposed to be. 
So I now can stand before anybody and try to move them closer to God. That's where I'm going. And I can look them in the eye and say, ah, well, actually, I think you're wrong about this. And here's why I think you're wrong about this. This is the history. This is the tradition. This is the theology. This is the biblical record. And try to move them. So Paul answers them by saying, you're both wrong. God made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable. That is to say, he made it for the creatures. And he gave us plenty of time and space for living so that we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. We can't get away from him. We're the God created. And this, of course, is what the gospel reading tells us this morning, that through God all things were made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. And so when Paul, you know, roaming around town and having these conversations, sees this one icon or this one statue uh, to this idol of the unknown God, he says, I want to tell you that the God that you admit is unknown, that is to say, you're confessing that you know there's something about the spiritual life out there that you presently don't know. Paul says, I want to tell you that what is unknown to you is actually now known, and that this God is calling for repentance, for radical life change. He's calling you to turn from idols, to abandon the caricatures of God, the distortions of God that keep you from the one true God. There is either one true God or there's not. And if there is, then it's him with whom we have to do. And not just me trying to align my life to him, but me helping anybody else who wants to get there as well. Because to not do that, we're abandoned to the place of the psalmist, to idols of silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear. And then the punchline those who make and trust in them will be like them, unable to really be human as God intended. Did you catch that? You know, everybody wants to talk today about sort of a better humanity and a, you know, a better world and more just place and all that, except for we keep trying to do it through idol making of our own and then we end up becoming just like them. So that if one were to look around today, one would want to say that humanity seems to be devolving and things seem to be getting worse and worse and worse, and perhaps it's because those who trust in and make idols will be like them. But these people, they're acknowledging that there's this unknown God, but their lives are still empty, still restless, still hungry, still full of fear in their hearts and their minds. But Paul says, God is not far off. He's near. He can be found. Seek after him. If you do, you won't just be groping around in the dark. You'll actually find him, for God doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. I want to, on this, our second anniversary, happy anniversary, by the way, and we'll get to more of that. I want to say something about how I see Holy Trinity Church sitting in the midst of this apparent conundrum. I've said to you before, I, you know, almost every day, every day if I'm home, um, Every afternoon, I go for a walk or ride my bike or something, and it in inevitably takes me around the back bay and out on Jamboree, and I, just, I can just always picture in mind the cars whizzing by, and just knowing that in, in many, many of those cars are sitting people for whom they genuinely say, I'm spiritual and want to be spiritual, and I'm, I'm not putting anybody down, I'm not being mean, 
but the vast majority of them are, like the psalmist is talking about, like creating kind of a customized spirituality. And, you know, a, you know, a little bit of Kabbalah and, a, you know, a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of Zen. And, you know, I read my Bible and I think Jesus is cool. And they're putting this thing together. And I just want to say we just run, those kind of people run a really big chance of becoming like the, that which they've created, which is actually nothing. When on the other hand, there is this actual God with whom we have to do. And that this story that began in divine intention, there is already a day been appointed in which everything and everyone will be called to account. So I picture myself sitting here in Orange County, feeling called to be here, especially in this part of Orange County, feeling called to be with you as my community of faith, feeling called to grow in Christ with you as my community of faith, and just wondering, how do we just sort of be here? What would it be for us to be a faithful presence, a faithful people? And I think a big part of this has been handed to us already. I want to think this morning, the last couple of minutes we have, about how our practices can connect with spiritual seekers who are seeking this unknown God. And the first thing is, I think if we can just all align ourselves to this notion that we're engaged in a very straightforward and plain journey, there's nothing tricky about what we're doing. We seek the spiritual transformation of our lives into Christ-likeness for the sake of others, period. Nothing tricky about that. It's very straightforward. It's very plain. It's very easy for anyone to see and understand. But this missional journey, especially as it's witnessed and experienced here during Sunday worship, is marked by three really core priorities for me. The first is intelligence. So why do I say that? You've heard me say it a couple times. I say it for this reason. The world, in my judgment, as it presently stands, is growing in the scope and complexity of its problems, its troubles, its disputes, its challenges. Perplexity and fear and anxiety and hopelessness color the internal lives of more and more people in our mission field, Orange County, California. I think this cultural reality is not one in which we can fight fire with fire. We don't answer complexity with complexity, but we must answer intelligently if we're to serve our time and our space in history well. So in order to respond to the messy fretfulness in all of our hearts and those of our neighbors, we root our worship and our followership of Jesus in the intelligence given to us in the liturgy. For instance, the opening acclamation that begins our worship roots our lives in the most decisive of all profundities, God and his kingdom. I mean, we could just kind of say period and go home. We literally could just stand together and say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be your kingdom now and forever. Amen and go home. We will have rooted our lives adequately in the most profound thing there actually is, God and his kingdom. The various prayers that we engage in teach and facilitate conversation with God. They cleanse our hearts. They lead us to more perfectly love God and worthily magnify him in all the aspects of our lives. Reading scripture aloud shapes our imagination around the reality that God is superintending our planet that he's bringing his will to completion in the midst of the world's current turmoil. Sermons reflect on these readings to teach us how to be participants, to be actors in this unfolding story of God. Saying the apostles or Nicene Creed is an opportunity to weekly affirm our yes to the story of Scripture and to publicly announce our allegiance to Christ. The prayers of the people teach us intercession. They guide us into praying for people. They teach us to pray for things around the world that not ever cross our radar screen, 
like problems in Africa or the jungles of Latin America. Confession of sin and God's absolution keep tight reins on the desires of our hearts. Eucharist or Holy Communion facilitates our apprenticeship to Jesus by memorializing our salvation in Christ and mediating to us weekly a participation in his ongoing life. The prayer of thanksgiving after Eucharist sends us into the world in peace to love and to serve God and neighbor with gladness and singleness of heart. I've been at this a long time, and I'm betting the farm on you guys. I'm betting the farm on us. I have tried every kind and sort of church that there is. And I've made some who we could draw crowds, and we could sort of um, have people kind of vaguely interested in what we're doing. But this rhythm that I just described to you, like the relentless beat of a metronome, the intelligence inherent in the above rhythm of prayer, word, and sacrament, what it does if we'll give ourselves to it in faith is it locks our lives into step with Jesus and his kingdom agenda in the world. That's what I'm betting the farm on. You give yourself to this. You give yourself to the story of Scripture. You give yourselves to prayer and word and sacrament. And you, you use the worship of, of the offices and these services as a way to actually become a follower of Jesus, and you will find your life getting locked into step with Jesus. Well, secondly, you've heard me talk about quietness. Why is that important to me? Quietness, contemplation, that sort of thing. Because words are everywhere. We live in a word-saturated world. And the God-created aspect of humankind was not designed to live in a constantly wordy world noise. That's kind of like asking a bird. You remember when the uh, oil spill happened in the Gulf, I don't know, six months or a year ago? And every night on the news, we saw the same picture of that bird covered in oil. You know, it's like an icon of that oil spill. Well, followers of Jesus trying to live in just the noise and the din of the world is like a bird trying to fly with oil on them. It doesn't work. Thus, a core practice for spiritual growth is silence. In silence, we can only hear two voices. One voice makes heard the inner shouts of our worries and anxieties, the clamoring din of our desires. The other voice is the loving, reordering, and reorienting expression of God. So quietness, rightly practiced, moves from being a physical separation from people and events and noises of our life to being a groundedness, a quality of heart, and an inner disposition that one experiences within the rhythms and routines of their actual life. So here at Holy Trinity, we practice, especially in our prelude, the quiet contemplation of silence, because even our liturgy can become wordy. Thus, each week, we make space for pauses, for silence, and in these spaces between words, we make ourselves present to God. And then third and last, you've heard me talk about beauty. I think beauty is important because contrary to the normal accounts in the news, God is healing the world. He has not abandoned his creation. In fact, he's coming ever closer to the world to reconcile it to him. God is renewing the whole cosmos in his image. This renewal, this reconciliation happens through Jesus, who is the world's true Lord and King. Arts and beauty have a key role to play in getting this message, the gospel, out. The arts are not just the pretty decorative aspects of church. If the whole person is in view when we speak of spiritual formation, in my view it is, then we need to speak to and deal with the whole person. That is to say we're more than our brains, we're more than cognition. And there are avenues to the human self that the arts and the arts alone seem to be able to get to. 
So we cannot seek the, the whole formation we want without the arts, being sanctified and empowered by the Holy Spirit and active and alive in the worship and work of the church. In my view, art creates and inspires imagination in a unique way. Like for me, maybe for you, maybe presently, you can't imagine, like you literally can't imagine a gospel-filled world in which God reigns in love and justice for all. You like would say, I, I literally can't imagine that. But there's a way forward. Employing art and beauty, freeing, blessing, embracing artists who have a unique giftedness to help us get there, to draw our imaginations into the God-shaped vision of our lives and the whole world being pulled ever gently into alignment with God's ultimate intention for humanity. So intelligence, quietness, and beauty. To cooperate with God in the transformation of our souls for the sake of others. For those groping around for something real. For those stuffing everything they can into their lives only to find that they thirst again. Intelligence, quietness, beauty. To cooperate with God for the transformation of our souls that those around us may find the God who is indeed near to them. Let's pray. God, would you make us, I pray, Holy Trinity Church, in the future that we have together, an intelligent response to real complexities. Would you help us to become a quiet, contemplative, breathing space where one could place themselves before God and find him? Would you do this in a way that we're surrounded by beauty, that affirms our createdness, acknowledges our brokenness, and points to God's new creation?